Hello there, folks, and welcome back to the show. I'm Joanna. I'm Nate, and we are Stranger Than. Today, we're going to come at you with three different stories, all related to weird events in World War II. Uh, not the regular ones you think of with Nazi occultists and what have you, but kind of different ones. Weird ones. Weirder weird ones. ones. Or a different kind of weird. Maybe not necessarily weirder. <laughs> well, you know, it's the it's the holiday season. And for me, holiday season always me means, uh, you know, weird Nazi Nazis. mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's weird, but... <laughs> not really. Not really. <laughs> I, I don't uh, associate the joy of the holidays with Nazis because there is nothing joyful about them at all. They suck. No, Nazis are fucking shitty. They are anti-joy. Yes. <laughs> well, why don't you start us off with a story of the strange? All right. I have a, a lurid Nazi mystery, which would be the death of Angela Maria, known as Geli Rubal. She was the daughter of Angela Rubal, who was uh, Hitler's half-sister. So the half-sister was Angela. The daughter was Angela Maria, called Geli. And Angela was Hitler's half-sister on his father's side. She served, she's in the 20s. She started, 1920s, she started serving as a housekeeper to his um, Berchtgarden retreat in Bavaria. And Gelly came along with her, and they began to get unusually close, Hitler and Gelly. He was 19 years older than her, but um, he... How old was she? She was, like, in her time? teens. She was, like, in her teens. Like, 16 when, or something? Yeah. She, she was a, a young teenager when she first uh, came to live with him. And... Yeah, by all accounts, he was just totally infatuated with her. There's, like, a lot of people who said that she was really beautiful. I've seen pictures of her, and I don't, like, she's a good-looking person, but not someone, like, I would consider to be, like, strikingly beautiful, but it could be that she just didn't photograph that way, because a lot of people say that, you know, she was really, really enchanting and beautiful and gorgeous, so... Standards of beauty are probably different in the 1920s, especially in Germany. Right. Uh, I would imagine that because they didn't have things like Instagram, the what was what was considered beautiful was very based on the area you were at, very yes. geographically base, uh, based. So people on West Coast America and East Coast America may have been had different ideas of what was beautiful, and I would certainly Germany and America would have vastly different views. Yeah, I've seen those posts where it shows like the ideal body type for women according to, you know, wherever in the world and how that differs radically. Oh yeah, and I was just probably just much more back back when you just didn't have really any communication very much. Yes. I'm always um dumbfounded by the one in America where it's like, you know, skeleton. <laughs> 
They ought to just show right? somebody's skeleton instead of like a really skinny girl. <laughs> with makeup. Skeleton with makeup and a, a wig. Skeleton with makeup and a wig. That's that's what's hot over here. Well, as he rose to power, it seemed like his obsession with her and his possessiveness of her just escalated. She traveled everywhere with him like she was always by his side. And so there is a lot of speculation. I mean, at this time, Hitler still wasn't um, Reich Chancellor of Germany. He was still forming the, I mean, he had formed the National Socialist Party, but it was not the superpower that it, it came to be later on. At so, this point, he was probably rolling around, giving fiery speeches, just sort of drumming up support, that sort of right, thing. Right, exactly. And needed and needed a lot more support than what oh, he yeah. had I mean, currently. He was a fucking, like, shitty artist. He was just, like, <laughs> basically doing street art for money to, like, rent a room to sleep in. And he had a fucking roommate. No doubt a huge scandal involving his half-niece would have been bad at the time because he wasn't, like, the all-powerful as he was in later years. Whenever he couldn't go, whenever he couldn't have her with him on business, uh, he would have, like, she had, like, guards uh, with her at all times. He had people spy on her. He fired his <laughs> chauffeur, Emile Maurice, because he suspected that he had been involved with Gelly. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's not creepy at all. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, eventually, he gets an apartment in a you know very posh apartment because he's starting to get more and more money as he gets more and more people backing the cause. Yeah. So he gets this really nice um, posh apartment in Munich. Um, I'm not going to say the name of it because I can't. <laughs> Fair enough. His apartment in Munich. That should suffice. <laughs> good enough. Good enough. So she also moved in with him. They had separate bedrooms, but they were bedrooms that were, like, on the same floor. Now, her mother, Angela, was there some of the time, but he also still had her back at the retreat a lot of the time, too. So probably she wasn't there acting as chaperone as much as maybe she should have been. Yeah, especially for the time. Even though he was really obsessed and obsessive and, and kind of uh, seemed to keep her almost like a virtual prisoner, like locked by his side all the time, he did support one of her dreams. She had a big dream of being an opera singer. Apparently, she had a really sweet voice. Um, maybe not like opera voice, but she did. She could still sing. She could still sing. And he even uh, employed some of the best vocal teachers in Munich to help her in her quest to become an opera singer. Sounds like a, a scary position to be in. Like, you have to teach, the, like, goddamn Hitler's niece to sing. And he's <laughs> super creepy into her. And if you don't get her to sing, God knows what's going to happen to you. And sure, she right. can kind of sing, but opera singer? Like, fuck. <laughs> well, this was still like late twenties, early. Uh, she she dies in nineteen thirty one. So oh right, so well so, before he's the yeah. I mean, he's very powerful. It was still you know like 
he he's still a big deal, but um, you know, he's not the the big deal. Yeah, yeah. But still, probably, you know, he's got lots of money. He's got lots of uh, you know, he certainly has a substantial amount of power and influence to where maybe they were just like, okay, they weren't going to say no. <laughs> yeah. It just might not be that they might not yet fear for their lives if if they did say no. Not yeah, the time he was probably still turning on the charm wasn't quite the fucking psychopath he ended up being. Right. Apparently her ambitions, uh, she felt, were you know, she needed to go to Vienna in order to uh, fulfill her music career. And then there was a rumor that she also uh, wanted to get engaged to someone I don't know. I wasn't not able Hitler. to find out. Yeah, not Hitler. Uh, but on the morning of September 17th, 1931, is when she announces to Hitler and says, I want to leave and go to Vienna. I've been making plans, and it's kind of like a solid thing now, so I'm going to be leaving you soon and doing that. And he flew into a rage. The argument became so heated that Gelly's mother happened to be there at the time. She uh, stepped in to intervene and kind of, you know, told Hitler to simmer down. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> you can't talk to my young daughter like that, dude. Yeah. And once Hitler had calmed down, she felt it was safe to leave the apartment. I don't know where she went, but she took off. The fight picked up again, though, shortly afterward. Uh, neighbors reported hearing yelling, and then Hitler was seen storming out of the apartment and then leaving in his car. Uh, the there were several house um, workers, servants, whatever. The cook was one of them, and he reported that uh, Gelly locked herself in her room and could be heard weeping from the other side of the door. Night comes, and everyone goes to bed, and at around 11.50 p.m., the servants were woken from the noise of a gunshot coming from Gelly's room. They managed to get the door open and found her lying face down in a pool of blood. Next to her was a pistol owned by Hitler. Instead of calling the police, the uh, housekeeper at the time decided that it was better to call Rudolf Hess, which was Hitler's secretary. <laughs> yeah. Right. Jesus fucking Christ. Well, I'm sure the house staff was afraid of him. Oh, I'm sure. Even they saw if, him at home. Even if John Q, a uh, vocal court, coach, wasn't, um, probably they were like, yeah, they, they probably knew under no circumstances do you ever call the cops for anything. Right. So they call Hess. So they Why call not? Hess to come and do cleanup. Wasn't he the fucking magician? No, I don't think so. I don't think he was. Hess wasn't. I'm pretty sure Hess. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Hess that got into like a magic fight with Aliester Crowley, and then ended up flying know. over the English Channel and landing in Scotland, and then getting taken prisoner. Mm, well, so, maybe yeah. it's because he thought he did such a great job making scandal from this not happen. <laughs> that he... <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Although even that was um, not really done well, uh, it was pretty scandalous. 
the initial report was that she had died accidentally. The second one, uh, with Hitler's approval, was that she had committed suicide. But it was suicide by a single gunshot wound to her heart. And, uh, you know, Hess, I guess, arranged for just a very, like, kind of, like, you know, very visual-only examination done and, like, no police inquest. But in that examination, it was shown that her nose had been broken, shattered, I think, was the word that was used. That usually happens when you shoot yourself in the chest with a gun. It shatters your nose. (laughs) (laughs) And... Yeah, it was it was still kind of one of those things where the the media wasn't a hundred percent buying it, and it did make some big headlines. But eventually, everyone stopped talking about it. The weird thing is, is yeah. So was she murdered, or did she commit suicide? Was the broken nose just like a nice? parting gift from uncle hitler like when they had that argument (laughs) you know did he like bust her nose before leaving the apartment and storming off or did somebody uh come in break her nose in order to um subdue her and then shoot her in the chest that we may never know we will never know it seems more likely to me that Uncle Adolf would have popped her in the schnoz and then left in a huff because he was just a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can so... also see him having someone come in and kill her. I just don't think they would have to subdue her with a punch if they have a pistol. I think that a, a pistol is pretty good is a pretty good way to subdue somebody. That's true. That's true. And also I think that I mean, we don't know, I guess, because the reports, I'm sure, are pretty scarce. But I would imagine if someone came in before the gunshot, you may hear her scream or or something, especially if she's getting popped in the, pump, punched in the nose. Have you ever gotten punched in the nose super hard? Yeah. Did you, were you able to scream immediately after? I wasn't. Or speak or make any noise. I was. I wasn't trying to make noise. Okay. I I guess. I guess it all depends on what your base reaction to that is. Well, the thing. I mean, it's so painful. I. I just remember one time, like as a kid, like my my brother accidentally hitting me with something in the nose, like one of his guns, or we were fucking around in like the backseat of the van, just like you know being a little shits and he whacked me in the face by accident and hit me in the nose really hard and i just remember it like took my breath away like i it was so painful i did end up like totally bawling and crying but it was i don't know probably like 30 seconds before i could even like make a sound because it was just like <gasps> like so hideously painful it like took my breath away like i couldn't yeah i mean i guess it could really go either way all. So I would say that there is a higher chance that someone would be able to get a scream out if their life was actually endangered and they weren't just accidentally hit with a plastic gun, you know, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, maybe they couldn't maybe her being a little bit older and also you got older faster 
the longer ago it is. So someone 16 in the 1920s is probably more equivalent to someone 20 nowadays or something, you know? Just because mm-hmm. they had to grow up faster, there was less time to fuck around than there is now. Yeah, at the Especially time of her death, for a woman in, you know, in Europe at the time, I'm sure they got married off pretty damn young. At the time of her death, she was 23. Yeah, it's very young. Yes, tragic to be dying. Young. <laughs> Tragically young, but yeah. So here's a couple of theories. First of all. Hitler seemed genuinely, genuinely distraught over her death. He was apparently in Nuremberg when she was shot because Rudolf Hess had to send a message to Nuremberg and tell him to get the hell back to the apartment. Yeah. Now, whether or not that's true, who knows? But but he did seem genuinely distraught over her death he was kind of inconsolable for years afterwards he would lock himself in her old room on the anniversary of her death and just lock himself in her room for hours and not to say that um (laughs) you know poor little hitler (laughs) no i'm not i'm not trying to say poor little hitler i'm just saying It's possible he was uh, grossly obsessed with her, that he could have this huge obsession with her and still murder her and still be sad about it. Like, those things can all occur at the same time. Just because you murdered somebody because you couldn't, you know, you didn't want anyone else to have them doesn't mean that you can't be sad that they're dead. Yeah, I mean, you're still obsessed with them. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that he was you know, prostrate with grief doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't kill her or have her killed. It is kind of odd that he would use his own gun and leave it next to the body, though. It's just... (laughs) That's the thing that's a little weird for me. I mean, Hitler, not like a master of subtlety, for sure. (laughs) But even that... leave the gun is Right. It's like, that's just a little too obvious, even for Hitler. And I wouldn't have been surprised if he gave her a gun just because he was paranoid, just, just in right. case anyone tries to go for her. Yeah, it well, wouldn't he surprise was... me at all to find out she had a gun. It wouldn't surprise me to find out she had a gun and a couple of cyanide capsules and shit. Yeah, no shit. A little it's bit like, of here, meth. Take these <laughs> if you're ever caught. Put this in your mouth and bite down. Yeah. Some other likely suspects would have been. Heinrich Himmler. Yeah. The fact that, I mean, they were seen together all the time. People kind of had an idea that they were in some sort some sort of relationship, even though she was his half-niece. He might have had her killed because not only did she, you know, get Hitler all riled up um, because of his feelings towards her, but also it was a little bit of a stain, and he was worried about that maybe spreading onto the Nazi party as a whole. And Himmler is definitely capable of murder. Yes, definitely. Another Nazi henchman more than happy to commit murder in order to further the goals of the party would have been uh, Martin Bormann. So those are the two names. Who have shitheads in the fucking upper (laughs) echelons of the Nazi party. Yes. 
Now, there's also the theory that maybe she did kill herself, but why? One was that, well, Hitler had started to see very secretively, but nonetheless had started to uh, date Eva Braun. It was Eva Braun who he was, you know, with all the way until the end, but he kept their relationship very much under wraps. And the theory put forth is that, like, well, maybe she felt like that she was being, like, replaced and that she was no longer the object of her uncle's love. And I was just kind of like, really? I mean, <laughs> like that I... seems gross. Yeah. <laughs> well, and just that uh, it seems more like, I mean, to me, I think if she killed herself, it was because... She was the she knew she was the object of her uncle's sick affections and that she was just never gonna get away. Yeah, I mean, was she under guard to protect her from other people? Is she a willing homie to Hitler? Did she want to hang out with him all the time? Right. I mean, who knows? I'm sure she said she did, but <laughs> I mean maybe for a time I'm sure she didn't want to get shot until she it was yeah, just like weird. Well, weirder, I imagine. Yeah. So I think if she did kill herself, it was to get away from him, not because she was jealous of Eva Braun. And if that was the case, then the whole I'm going to Vienna, I mean, that could have been like a ploy. But once he blew up and freaked out and was like, no, you're not going anywhere, obviously that would have like satisfied that. And she wouldn't have felt the need to kill herself if that was really the reason. Right, right. So I think it was the total opposite. I'm sure she probably wished Eva Braun was more of a thing and that he would focus his attention on Eva rather than her. But apparently that wasn't going to happen, and so maybe she felt it was her only way out. Other things maybe that Eva are... snuck in and killed her because she <laughs> was jealous of Hitler's affection towards her. Maybe so. I didn't see her listed as a suspect ever. And I don't know. I mean, um, for all that she was with the evilest man on earth, uh, Eva didn't seem like much of a doer to me. Like, Oh, I, I don't know she, she, if I, the Nazi party was hip to women doing much more than birthing more Nazis. Right. So I don't think they even were. Even if she uh, yeah, even if she wanted to do something, I'm fairly certain that that was not her place. So she right. wasn't going to be doing anything but Hitler. Hitler. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> yeah. Hitler she crooning didn't... about a mustache ride. <laughs> You're fucking sick. You're sick. Okay, now, no suicide notes. That was a weird thing. The only note that was found was she was writing a letter to a girlfriend about moving to Vienna, which basically stopped mid-sentence. Now, could be that she just got tired and, you know, decided she was going to finish her letter later. I don't know. Maybe she got punched in the face and <laughs> shot in the chest. Yeah. Well, that's, that is what happened to interrupt the letter, ultimately. But yeah. <laughs> who shot her? Who shot her in the chest? We don't know. And also, we technically don't know who broke her nose either. Yeah, yeah, true. Now, 
the Strasser brothers, they they had some things to say on the subject. Some of the most compelling information on the untimely death of Gelly. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So the Strasser brothers, it was Otto and Gregor, and they were all founders of the Nazi party. So it was Hitler and Otto and Gregor and some other fuck shit. I don't know. They were, they, you know, they started the whole thing. And at one point, Gregor was Hitler's top rival to um, being like the leader of them. So they were kind of douche. Yeah. They were kind of in, in, uh, a battle as to who is going to be the head Nazi fuckbag. <laughs> <laughs> so Gregor is rumored to have said that he knew two of Hitler's darkest secrets. The first being his alleged venereal disease. Oh, right. And then the second was his involvement in Gelly's death. Mm. But whatever further light that Gregor Strasser could have shed on the incident was snuffed out just a few years later in 1934 when he was murdered, along with many others, in the purge of the Nazi party. That's like when when Hitler really stopped fucking around and was like, okay, we're taking out anyone who has any kind of opposition to me within the party. And we're going to only line it up with guys that 100% back me because I am going to be the ultimate power. Now, Otto managed to escape the purge and fled to Canada. And when he essentially defected uh, to the U.S. from Canada, uh, he had to give a briefing to OSS intelligence officers. And basically just come clean with his associations with Hitler and everything he knew about him, including the sordid details of him and Gelly's relationship. Right. (laughs) So he said that he liked Gelly very much, and I could feel how much she suffered because of Hitler's jealousy. She was a fun-loving young thing who enjoyed the Mardi Gras excitement in Munich. This was the one time he was able to to take her out on a date. I guess he, he accompanied her to the Mardi Gras ball. And at some point when they're out together, she begins to weep and just says, you can't imagine what my life is like. And that yeah. <laughs> she said that Hitler loved her, but she couldn't really stand it anymore. and. You know, this life with him was intolerable and went on to say when he asked her, well, what exactly is going on with you and Hitler? She went on to tell him that Hitler would make her strip from the waist down and he would, you know, look at her very closely and get all excited and that at the peak of his excitement she had to she would take his shirt off and she had to stand over him and pee on him yeah wow that's uh uh uh, weird 
Yeah, so just I look guess. at her and then <laughs> Yeah, just look at her peed on. parts up close and, and then have her pee on him. He yeah. was in he was in the golden showers, I guess. You know what um, they call that? They call it the Deutschland dribble. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. All right. Well, you know, whatever consenting adults want to do. It's a little weirder when it's kind of like he's uh, her, his uh, niece and, um, you know, just kind of in his power and control. Like that's. Yeah, it's a little fucked up when there's not really a whole lot of consent there, I'm sure. Right. And it's his niece and i mean half yeah still like i mean the whole relationship is weird and that just makes it like so much more gross um you do have to take what otto has to say with a grain of salt though i mean oh yeah i mean he was overthrown yeah i mean obviously he's not a big fan of hitler at this point oh yeah i mean i'm sure he's gonna talk as much shit as he possibly can i mean mm-hmm. so yeah i mean because you know hitler murdered his brother threw him out of the party yeah took away all his power i can see yeah. him as, as making up some especially because i mean nowadays you're like that's weird but whatever but back in the 30s and 40s that would mm-hmm. be the height of debauchery they'd be like oh my god i can't right. believe that wait so you would just <laughs> look at her nether regions and then what? Then she'd pee on his chin. Holy Jesus! <laughs> you know, I just see how... Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine those OSS officers just like, what the fuck? Oh, you know, right. Like, 1943, like, America is like, it's like bread and butter. Right oh, yeah. God. It's like, dude, nobody pees on <laughs> other people as a they didn't even sexual pee gratification in, by themselves at the point in time. It was all there was no <laughs> peeing then. That's right. There was no peeing whatsoever. It wasn't until the nineteen seventies people started to pee. Yeah. And apparently when he told she confessed all this to Otto, they were uh they were near this uh area called the Chinese Tower, so it's like the Chinese Tower story is how it's uh, known. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's about all I have on on the, the sad death of Gelly. I mean, it's just, her life was unfortunate, no matter what. Whether she ended it herself to just get away, or somebody took her out to, you know, better further the party, like, that sucks. Yeah. I mean, Hitler sucks. If we didn't have more reasons to dislike Hitler. Right. Oh, and uh before I'm an asshole, uh my sources vanityfair.com and the sun.co.uk. Well, I'm going to talk about Someone on the Allied side. All right. Jasper Maskelyne, like his father and father before him, was a stage magician. His father was called Neville, and his grandfather was called John Neville. Jasper was born in 1902 in a part of London called Wandsworth. Yes, Wandsworth. A stage magician, a generational stage magician, was born 
in Wandsworth. Like W-A-N-D? Yes, Wandsworth. Like I have this magical wand, Wandsworth. Now, the reason it's called Wandsworth isn't very cool. It has nothing to do with magic. That just happens to be the part of London where the river Wandle enters the Thames. So, you know, pretty mundane. If it was in Germany, it would be Wandle. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Very true. As I said, Maskelyne was a stage magician, which at that time was something that someone could make a living at. In fact, it was wildly popular in the 20s and 30s. He wrote a book in 1936 called Book of Magic, which was a a magician's handbook of sorts. It's described how to do different tricks and all that sort of stuff. He was in a movie in 1937 called The Famous Illusionist. In this movie, he swallows 12 razor blades and then pulls them out of his mouth, all connected to a string, all the while dressed to the nines. Apparently, this was a trick he was known for. He would just toss back a handful of razor blades like a normal person does peanuts. Jasper's career was going pretty good. But then, goddamn Hitler and his shitty-ass Nazis started a war. This as it turns out, was not good for the stage magician industry in the UK. Hitler pretty much stomped across Europe to France and then bombed the shit out of Britain for around three months before turning to Russia. They brought Italy with them, who stomped around Africa with the help of the shitty Nazis because they couldn't get the job done themselves. Uh, Like many British people of the time, Maskelyne signed up for service for king and country, what? He was 37 years old when he signed up for military service, which was older than most. It took him some work, but he managed to get into the Royal Engineers. They're called sappers. These are the folks that do the cunning shit in the military. They set explosives, dig fortifications, they build, they demolish. They're sort of the MacGyvers of the British military. He allegedly made some illusion, which made it look like there was a German warship on the Thames using mirrors, and this is what convinced the military to let him into the Royal Engineers. Not sure how he pulled that off, but, you know, stage magician, mirrors. (laughs) Once accepted into the Royal Engineers, he was sent off to Africa to fight the Germans and Italians. This was the main theater of ground combat at the beginning of the war. At this time, it wasn't just the United Kingdom. It was the British Empire. They had colonies all across the globe. These are the last few decades of when the sun never set on the British Empire. Yes, it was vast. It was vast. It was worldwide. It was, I believe, the biggest the biggest empire the world has ever seen. It at least spanned the farthest reaches. According to Jasper, this is where he excelled. After being sent to Africa, he engineered a variety of illusions to help keep the Nazi Luftwaffe from bombing key key targets. The Luftwaffe was the Nazi Air Force. He was also the head of a group called the Magic Gang. What? Yeah, the Magic Gang. That's awesome. They were a bunch of people with varying areas of expertise. Uh, You'd basically expect these people to be on a movie set. You've got carpenters, electricians, painters, engineers, chemists, and they actually had a stage set builder. I want to be part of the magic gang. Yeah, no shit, right? 
That uh, just least sounds awesome. Would, yeah, I mean, yeah, at least you have a cool name, if it, right? If nothing else. These folks pulled off some elaborate tricks that drew Axis attackers away from targets. Here are a few of their accomplishments. Operation Bertram. This was a very cunning plan. It was a plan to keep the enemy misinformed to what was actually going on. They would take canvas and light poles and put them on tanks, and it would make the tanks look like trucks from the planes above. It's crazy, because I saw pictures, and it looks like a truck. It totally looks like a truck, but they're actually tanks. And then they would take these trucks, and they would disguise them like tanks. And they would actually do such a convincing job, they would have tracks laid down after the fake tanks. So this was to draw the enemy the wrong way. The enemy thinks they're bombing at these tanks that are somehow fucking elusive as shit, because they're actually trucks. And then the tanks, they're, they're not going to worry bombing trucks. It doesn't matter. They're not able to really do anything besides, besides transport. So why, why worry about them? But they were actually tanks. Very cunning. They would similarly camouflage supplies to appear as just part of the, topo as part of the topography. Remember, I mean, World War II was still fairly primitive warfare, I mean, compared to today. So they didn't really have radar until 1944. It was first used in June 17, 1935, but it wasn't actually viable until there was almost no more war left to war. So these pilots were just flying above these targets and using their eyeballs and maybe binoculars to look and see and then attacking like that. Additionally, they had to stay kind of high up because at this time, whatever aircraft had the higher ground, basically, was the higher cloud, I guess was the one that was pretty much going to win. Yeah, I think... A lot of just sort of dive bombing and shooting. Right, yeah, no, I think the visual, it was just looking, and then uh, usually the bombardier, I think, had, you know, on, on the bigger planes, at least, where they had a separate person to drop the bombs, they they had, like, a, a binocular-type thing that they would look down on the ground below. Yeah, but nothing today where they just paint it with laser and then have a drone fly up and, and shoot. <laughs> I mean, it's it's insane now. It's right. It's it's right. barely anything. It's like shooting rabbits with a M sixteen. You know, it's just yeah. No, it was all basically the naked eye. Yeah. Anyway, they had this plan where they had all these fake tanks and these fake trucks parked, and then they had this fake pipeline that they were slowly putting together and so when the reconnaissance airplanes would fly over they'd see them supposedly building this outpost but it was going very slowly so the nazis were like oh it's fucking fine it's not a big deal they are never going to make it to where they need to make it to and um i mean it it actually worked they ended up capturing a nazi officer who said that he thought that the attack would be made in the South, which is where they were making it look like it was happening, when in fact it was happening elsewhere. Uh, this is the campaign they call the Battle of El Alamein. And I believe it kind of sway it sways first towards the Axis and then back towards the Allies. But it's uh, it was a slugfest, apparently. The trick with the trucks and the tanks worked so well, they used it in 
they used it pretty frequently. Let's talk about Alexandria, well, fake Alexandria. The harbor in Alexandria, Egypt, was a target for the Nazis and vital to the British. Egypt was very important to the British Empire. I'm pretty sure they had let Egypt be their own sovereign country and then sort of just occupied it during World War II. And I believe that they it wasn't really sovereign, you know, it was I don't know what you call it, a protectorate or something like that, or a vassal state, something like that. Okay. At any rate, Britain was there during the war, and it was very important to them. What they did here was they disguised a different port to look just like Alexandria, and then they turned off the lights at Alexandria. The enemy reconnaissance would report the wrong area of being, you know, the port that they're trying to hit, and so they would go and they would bomb the shit out of that. Well, they also had planted a whole bunch of rubble. I believe at both sites, as well as made paper mache battle damage. So they would uncover the damage at the port in, in Alexandria, and then it would be already damaged from the bombing, the fake port they made. Uh, they made. So the Luftwaffe bombed these motherfuckers for eight nights and then took off because they thought they'd done mm-hmm. it, and thusly saving the port of Alexandria. Wow. They used this same plan to draw enemy bombers from the island of Malta. It was the same idea, just a different location. They had a, a fake island or a smaller island el- elsewhere, and they just made it fucking look like Malta. With paper mache? Yeah, with paper mache and just, you know, stuff. Just a fake... Uh, they'd, they'd set up, like, artillery and shit like that and have bonfires and just make it look like it was a working in place. Pretty fucking cunning. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. I would have just given anything for one of them that had to have bailed out at some point. No <laughs> and shit. then they land. I just land and it's just, there's nothing here. It's uh, sort of uh, like in uh, uh, Spinal Tap, they land and there's just like the very small, uh, the, the small Stonehenge instead of the large Stonehenge. Anyway. No, it's like you go there and it's like, you see this like plane and you go up and it's like freaking styrofoam and shit and be like, what the fuck? It's like, what the fucking shit is this? <laughs> Blow up tanks and sh- the shit like that. Yeah. The Suez Canal was another major target, which was outfitted with 21 spotlights, as well as mirrors. These spotlights illuminated 100 miles of the Egypt sky, which made enemy planes plainly visible to Allied anti-aircraft. And probably also difficult to actually see when you're flying trying to do these bombing runs. Also, here were used the fake tanks and trucks. Basically, it was the disguise they used, but just without the thing they were disguising. So it was just the the, the uh, costumes laying out there. They also made fake troops so that the Allied troops looked more robust than they actually were. They had all these great successes, and so military leadership said, hey, can you disguise a battleship? So he gave it a shot, so they grabbed this old ship of some sort, an old steamship or something, and they tried to make it look like a battleship. Well, it didn't really look like that convincing of a battleship, so what they did instead is they put fake battleship fixins on the actual battleships. So the enemy would fly up and be like, oh, those are fake battleships, and then get the shit blown out of them. 
Wow. They would even, on some of these bigger deceptions, like I said earlier, they would shoot artillery and set fires and that sort of thing. They also would be talking on the radio, giving false, just false chatter, just to, you know, fuck with the Germans, with the Nazis, and also would have on loudspeakers just sounds of explosions and shit playing during the attack. So I guess if they heard from their planes, it would sound like shit was burning. I don't know. There weren't a lot of ground troops, but maybe it was just to really sell it. By the end of the war, Maskelyne had earned the rank of major from lieutenant, sorry, lieutenant, and seen 16 countries. There is one rank, that's captain, between lieutenant and major. He had also been put on the Gestapo blacklist, and a bounty had been placed on his head. So, I mean... I mean, if you piss off the Nazis, you're doing something right. I mean, fuck Nazis. Totally fuck Nazis. He ended back in the UK in 1946 and then moved his his family to Kenya, Africa, in 1948. Between his return to the UK and subsequent departure, he attempted to get back into stage magic, but there just wasn't the audience. People were busy. Shit had been... People were dead... London had been bombed to fuck. A lot of of the UK had been bombed to fuck, so there was a lot of rebuilding to do. No one really had any time for stage magic. He started out playing London halls here and there, but then it was very swiftly not playing anywhere. One of his woman assistants actually ended up being a male U.S. Army deserter who had been incognito as a woman to keep from getting caught. In Kenya, he worked as a driving instructor, which he would have made a very good living at had he not been crazy for gin. So, a pretty wild story. Sadly, there are actually no records of there being a magic gang. There are also no records of many of his stories. Uh, there are records of him being in charge of a small group of fellas that did come up with the way to disguise the trucks and tanks, which was a really good idea. And there was a thing called A-Force, which was in charge of battlefield deception. But they were the ones that were pulling off the deceptions, and it didn't really have anything to do with him. There were records that show that he was transferred to what was called welfare duty within a few months of being arriving in Egypt. Welfare duty is basically just keeping morale up, sort of a USO comedy tour, but British and actually stationed with the troops. He would basically just do stage magic for the troops. It seems, I mean, he really wanted to make himself look cool, and so he wrote this book about all of his exploits, and some other guy uh, wrote a book in like the 80s about all of his exploits, but there's just no real proof that he did any of this. Uh, Operation Bertram did happen. Uh, the Suez Canal was covered with spotlights and AA weapons. However, there's no r- proof that he was involved at all. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I read quite a bit about him, and I really... Yeah, I mean, the fact that there's no proof of him having done anything, and it's this many years later. If this was the 1960s, I could believe that there would be no information about him because maybe it's still classified or something. But he was given two promotions, but who knows why? I mean, there's very little actual information to anything that he did. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sort of a letdown, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah. I really liked the magic yeah, game. it's a real bummer. 
Yeah, I know. It would have been cool. But Magic gang, nope. fucking, fucking Nazis up all over the place. Yeah, no. Sort of like Inglorious Bastards, but with magic. <laughs> yeah, sadly, no. Well, not that, at all. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen, okay? That's fair. Maybe it, he's just trying to keep it on the down low and... I don't know. His His son also is like my dad was full of shit <laughs> so i mean it's like <laughs> kind of uh kind of a thing right but you know who knows they were supposed to make a movie about it in 2003 and they didn't but they didn't they just didn't tom cruise was going to play the part of jasper what? but then they didn't and i guess i think i read it was because they couldn't find enough truth to make a movie out of it and i'm just thinking that doesn't make any fucking sense <laughs> no. cuz it's a goddamn movie and when if even movies I mean, that are supposed to be about, be about truth like stuck to truth right like you have Seriously. fucking braveheart and shit like great fucking movie but really far from the truth like yeah like, come yeah, on quite quite far from the truth so what's wrong with believing in a little magic a little nazi defeating well, magic in the recent past i want to say 2013 or 16 benedict cumberbatch said he would play jasper in a movie however it still hasn't gone anywhere i imagine he sort of got uh, busy you know with the whole Marvel thing. Right. Because, you know, he's Doctor Strange. Yes. Yes, he is Doctor Strange. Well, why don't you get into our final story of the episode, Joanna? I am going to get into the final story of the episode. Otto Ran. One, one could really call him an Indiana Jones type. Really? really? Whipping a hat? <laughs> I don't know about a whip. He definitely had a hat. Everyone had a hat back then. And uh, just a little background. This is basically going to be about the Nazis' obsession with the Holy Grail. It just it wasn't like a nifty plot point in, you know, Steven Spielberg's movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They actually did they it. Actually, or tried yeah. to. I mean, I, I love the Indiana Jones franchise. You know, there's there's supposed to be a fifth installment, but it was postponed because of COVID. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it's better than the fourth. <laughs> yeah, one can always hope. Yeah. But yeah, I mean it's not just a wildly inventive story about an archaeologist who is looking for old relics and, you know, encounters Nazis at every turn, also trying to get the same relics. Kind of happened in real life a little bit. Yeah. Well, Otto Rahn was born in 1904 in Mickelstadt, Germany. Now, as a young boy, he loved the story of Percival, who was an Arthurian I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> yeah, Arthurian. An Arthurian knight who goes on this quest for the Holy Grail. I'm pretty sure Percival is the only one who is um 
chased enough to actually find the grail or something. Yeah, now, I didn't realize this, but there's actually several stories written about Percival. Uh, the first one was written uh, by Shretian Detroit. Probably mispronounced the shit out of that. It was called Le Conte du Grail. Probably mispronounced that, too. It's fucking French. I suck at that. The last one was probably Dutois. <laughs> Dutois. It was probably Dutois. Okay. Uh, and Le Conte du Grail is the story of the Grail. Or Percival Le Galet, which probably is Percival the Gallant. My notes don't have the translation. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. We'll go with that. Now, uh, the author was never able to finish his story because he died and the story stopped at mid-sentence. <laughs> Several of the writers did pick up where he left off and they the subsequent stories were known as Grail Continuations. Hey, it's... <laughs> Calls him like I sees him. There is Robert de Boron, and he was a French poet, and he wrote three books uh, in about 1200. And it was uh, Joseph de Arimathea. Yeah. Can't imagine what that was about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that book, this is according to timelessmyths.com, that was the only one to survive intact, but his next two books, uh, only fragments were found. The second book was called Merlin. Ooh. Yeah. And then uh, the last one, Percival, I guess, you know, there's practically like nothing found of it, but apparently it existed at a time. Now about from... 1200 to 1210, a German known as Wolfram von Eschenbach. He also wrote a, it's called a poem, but it's like a really fucking long poem because it's uh, 16 books and 25,000 lines. But uh, yeah, that is the Parseval that I think probably little German Otto Rahn read as a young boy yeah now i'm gonna just give you a rundown of what was written <laughs> just just to summarize i mean it's it's pretty long it's long <laughs> as fuck and incomplete so yeah so it's a religious allegory describing Parsifal's painful journey from utter ignorance and naivety to spiritual awareness. The poem introduced the theme of the Holy Grail into German literature, and it is considered to be the climax of medieval Arthurian tradition. It questions the ultimate value of an education based solely on the code of courtly honor, and it takes its hero beyond the feudal world of knights and lords to the threshold of a higher order. Parsifal, who is eager to become a knight, leaves the forest home in which he has led a sheltered life. He visits Arthur's court, but is judged too raw to become a knight of the round table. Later, after numerous adventures, and there are numerous adventures, I did skim over it a little bit, he is granted knighthood. 
When he visits the ailing Grail King, however, he fails to ask the one question that will release the old man from his suffering, the reason behind his illness. For his ignorance, Parsifal is punished by being cursed, and in turn he curses God, whom he believes has turned against him. When he meets an old hermit who helps him realize the true nature of God, Parsifal reaches a turning point in his spiritual education. He returns to the Grail King, and this time, having gained wisdom, performs his duties correctly. He is rewarded with title and duties of Keeper of the Grail. Good job, Percival. <laughs> yes. Good job, Percival, and good job to Britannica.com for that actually really nice synopsis of the story. Because I had to <laughs> check a few places, and it was just like, okay, no, I can't paraphrase this <laughs> too much don't want to read that much i i actually uh like uh britannica i i visit their website often for uh all things britain <laughs> hey it's a good it place it's a good place so Otto goes to college he studies literature and philology which is the science of language okay it's there that he learns the exploits of fellow German and archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann. Now, uh, we have discussed this in episodes past, but he is the guy who followed the clues in Homer's Iliad to find the ruins of ancient Troy. Oh, <laughs> Which yeah. was at a, you know, thought to be like a made-up place, like Atlantis. But, but no. no, it was real. They found bits of Troy. So he decided that uh, after learning more about the Grail and in particular the Cathars, uh, who were like a religious sect and also rumored to be the keepers of the Grail before they were like massacred <laughs> <laughs> in the 13th century. Yeah, the, you know, religion was getting pretty streamlined and intolerant of any thing that any other yeah, religions basically yeah, any if other you religions weren't, if you weren't a big religion you were fucked and if you were another big religion you were probably going to fight with christianity because christianity likes to fight right and then islam likes to fight mm -hmm. and then if you were like a sect of christianity that didn't really like acknowledge the authority of the pope and deviated it all from you know the norm, like the oh, Cathars, yeah. you were also fucked. Oh, yeah. Abrahamic religions are weird because they all will talk about peace and everything. All of them talk about peace, and they're just not peaceful. No, it <laughs> seems to be riddled with violence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, constantly. Riddled with violence and hatred and intolerance and, uh, you know, Christianity in, in particular. It's like, oh, but yet you're following this person who is a pacifist who preaches who love and peace to all. Right. Okay. Yeah, but, you know, let's not actually right. do that. No, let's just, like, murder anyone who says that that's not the way. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. Because that's what Jesus would have wanted. Yeah, I think not. But anyway, Pope Pius III uh, called for the crusade against the Cathars and for them to be exterminated. So Otto decides that 
much like his, you know, German archaeologist hero, he is going to do the same thing to find the grail. He's going to follow the clues that are in Percival. Because in right. <laughs> in Percival, the German, you know, most recent Percival, uh the the Grail is located in the holy mountain of Mont Solvet. And he learns that there was a Cathar stronghold in Montsegur Castle that was supposed to be near a gigantic cane known as Monsalvet. So he's like, this has to be the same place. I'm going to follow the yeah, clues. I mean, fuck it. <laughs> so in 1931, Rand travels to Monsegur and he explores the ruins of of the castle where uh, <laughs> the Cathars met a very uh, brutal and terrible end in 1244. Uh, it was captured after a prolonged siege and about 200 of them were burned alive together in what was remembered as the Field of the Burned. Yeah, that's a good name for a place where a bunch of people got burned in a field. Like, awesome. Shitty way to go. Definitely. That's... That's the the worst. However, there is a legend that four Cathar knights managed to scale down the castle walls and escape with treasures that, you know, unknown treasures, but treasure nonetheless. And one of those treasures was possibly the Grail. The Grail. The Grail. Yes. Now, Rand did find some hidden tunnels and chambers at the site. I would literally give anything to go and check those out. Yeah, that'd be cool. Like, this is 100% my thing. Like, I love runs. I love archaeology. I love really old places. Um, My son was just talking about when he went to uh, London in Scotland and uh you know kind of all over the UK with my my brother my my sister and brother-in-law a couple of years ago and he was talking about how they were, he was learning all about Henry V and and he loved it too and I'm just like oh man I got to do that same trip you know at 15 and it was great it was awesome but god I was 15 years old a long time ago yeah, yeah, no like shit. okay, sad. Yeah, I I would totally give anything to be able to go back to the UK and revisit some of those places and go to France to that place to you know. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe someday. Monsieur and after the C virus. Yeah, I mean coronavirus. Uh, that's, that's the first time I've been prevented from going anywhere because of a virus. Usually it's just because I'm fucking broke and I can't afford it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like, this is the first year I won't be spending Christmas in Hawaii because of Corona. Every other year I'm just fucking broke. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good joke going around, going around. It is. It's nice. Yep. Anyways, he, he didn't turn anything up. But he did kind of run out of money, too. So, I mean, you can only sit around looking through ancient caves and passageways for so long before it's like, oh, hey, I'm kind of hungry. Oh, I've run out of money to uh, stay somewhere. Supplies and and food. Vehicle and and just everything. Yeah, just everything. So he, he ends up 
having to, you know, call off his search, but he does write a book about his search for the Grail, and it's called Crusade Against the Grail. And he talks about his search for it. He also uh, posits the theory that um, that there are actually two grails. There's an emerald cup and a stone tablet, and that the stone tablet also maybe supposedly is subscribed with Runs by a race of pre-German supermen who had attained the ultimate knowledge of the law of life. And they represented the group. Or maybe it's just uh, <laughs> some sort of intergalactic iPad. Yeah, it's like the Stargate or something. Yeah, it's just like, oh, it's just a stone tablet. Like, no, it's a fucking iPad. It's a tablet. <laughs> it opens up. You've got information on it. Why did they think they thought it was so holy? <laughs> there was a light that came out of it. It's LED. They didn't know about LED back then. It was crazy. Was, that would be some fucking magic for sure. <laughs> Probably be really hard. I mean, you could get to light up, but there, I don't think there was any, like, you know, internet service. <laughs> True. Back then. True. Just whatever's on the, uh, on the hard yeah, drive. Yeah, it's whatever, you, whatever apps you've downloaded, and most of them have been like, oh, error. <laughs> but I guess even then, that would have been, like, magic. Yeah. Total fucking magic. Uh, these, you know, pre-German supermen and that whole theory that really, really appealed to a certain Nazi (laughs) named Heinrich Himmler. Yep. He loved the book. Overall, the book was not a success. I hear it's a really good book, and I'd actually like to read that book. Um... But yeah, overall, not successful unless you're Heinrich Himmler and he was just like, this is the best because among... Right. I mean, Himmler, God. He was a crazy he was dude. A he really, was super into the occult. He was. I'm, yeah. you know, he also was the engineer of the final solution and, you know, a yeah. horrible racist and homophobe. But yeah, also just loved all things And it's occult. weird that he was such a homophobe. I mean, it's just, I guess it's not weird he was a homophobe. It was just weird that he liked the book so much for being such a homophobe. Right. Well, I don't know that he, that, I mean, Otto Ran was homosexual, but I don't know that that was a well-known thing because even when you're not in like, uh, you know, Nazi Germany or pre-Nazi Germany, that was still something you just weren't on the up and up about. I believe he was openly homosexual. I know in Britain it was against the law, but I don't know if it was in Germany or not. I mean, it was eventually. Right. But I mean, I it definitely it was, was eventually. I don't know if it was like a borderline thing. Like it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know. It either. was known, but it, I think it was still kind of like, you know, with like it was rumored and like, you know, nobody ever like directly right. said it. It was implied. And right, right. That kind of thing. So maybe he was like an implied homosexual, but. <laughs> A confirmed bachelor. That's right. That's right. Lotto's kind of depressed, and he's just like, damn, this book isn't going well. I still am poor as fuck. Uh, The sales of the book were not even going to come close to clearing the debt he'd already racked up, much less fund further adventures in Grail Finding. But one day he gets this anonymous telegram saying, I love your work. Please come to this address in Berlin so I can discuss giving you some money so you can do more of it. And he's just like, what? Yes. 
the dream it does. until you find out oh, that uh, the guy who contacted you was none other than no, then Heinrich Himmler. Yeah, he jumps on the train to Berlin and shows up at his apartment. And who answers the door? Fucking Himmler. And at this point, he's just like, yeah, so I really love your work. I want you to do more. Um, I'm going to give you all this money. I'm going to send you uh, to some other places, too, because not only did he want Ren to actually find the Grail by 1937, he wanted him to you know, publish another book by 1937 and also by 1939. So, wow. So he had, uh, he had some like plans a two-book deal. Plus, he wanted him to research all this ancestral German stuff uh, in relation to, like, the old gods. Because Himmler's ultimate goal really was to um, eradicate Christianity. He didn't like Christianity. It's going to be a new German religion or the old German religion. Right. He wanted to go back to the old, old ways. To the old pagan, you know, gods and what have you, because he felt that since Christianity was based on following Jesus, who was born a Jew, uh, that that wasn't the thing for, you know, proper Aryans to be, you know, following. Of course, of course. Well, yeah, I mean, it it makes sense in a terrible way. I have often... It, thought it was it falls in line with their anti-semitism it does it does i i've often thought that it's really weird when people are openly an- anti-semitic and christian at the same time like it's yeah, like, you're uh, like you don't know what you're talking right. about do you and moreover when they want to uh quote stuff particularly from leviticus and it's like you you do yeah. know that moses wrote that that's that's the sixth book of moses moses was 100 percent a jew like this whole part of this whole old testament is basically the jewish torah yeah it is exactly that actually (laughs) so here you are and (laughs) you're trying to use this uh this stuff from the jewish torah to basically um spew out a bunch of hate and intolerance some of it against jews themselves and yeah, like, do you not even see the problem here? I, I mean, at least, at, at least Himmler was. It, it, it makes sense. It makes sense in a, like I said, in a terrible, awful way. But yeah, yeah. He's, at least it's he's he's following a line of right, logic. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, he wanted to find out all this stuff about the old gods and, um, I guess prove his theory that. One of them being that there was a lost Aryan race that lived in Atlantis, and they were the like the forefathers of the Aryans, and they are really racially superior to everyone else in the world. So basically, just every fucked up thing that they think they they wanted that to be confirmed in some way, and Otto Ran was going to be a big part of that because he he, he was going to so go find proof. A homosexual. <laughs> A homosexual Nazi hating dude, possibly Jew, possibly part Jew. I think maybe yeah. maybe his mother on his mother's side. There was some um, that became a problem for him that he couldn't prove his Aryan heritage. Like they kept right. like it was something like they kind of kept asking for it because I guess that was like a thing you had to like, do. Oh, yeah, and he's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, let me get back to you. Uh, yeah. So he was put out. On a mission. Now, 
talking with some of his close friends that were just like, dude, what are you doing? Because not only seriously, not only was he employed, you fucking bootlicker. Yeah, I mean, he went full on SS. He was, you know, inducted into the, you know, SS. Like yeah. he had the uniform and everything, and his friends was just his friend was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And he was like, "Well, what was I supposed to do? Turn him down?" I guess that's also. It's a good. Point. It is a good point. It is a good point. I think he was well aware that he was making a deal with the devil, but at that point, it's just like okay, like everything just starts going bad for you when you're on their radar, whether it's like good or or not good. Um, like it's just yeah. W- once once they've noticed you, you're kind of fucked. You could try to say no. Yeah, and, you don't want to be noticed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You could try to say no and and hope that they don't, uh, you know, continue to notice you um, or mark you in some way and wonder why you said no. Or you could just try and play along and hopefully, uh, you know, get out of it alive. Something. Something. Hopefully Hopefully something. something. (laughs) Yeah. So he travels all over the place. He goes to Iceland. Looking for the grail. He's looking for the grail. He's trying to trace back the, the roots of the, you know, Aryan super race, what have you. He His next book, he does deliver it in uh, 1937. It's called Lucifer's Court. And it's it introduces a theory that the fabled Prince of Darkness was actually a positive spiritual figure who was misappropriated and distorted by Christianity. So there's a lot of things that that's very like kind of like anti-Christian, like, Oh, Lucifer was awesome. Luciferian kind of, he's a light bringer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And there is some, there is definitely some anti-Semitic rhetoric in there, and it's it's kind of hard to tell, um, you know, how much of it he believed and how much was kind of put in there to make Himmler happy, too. Right, right. So, he was writing for a specific audience, right. and it was Himmler. Yes. Yes. So that came out, and Himmler loved it, um, ordered up several hundred copies for him and his fellow SS officers apparently even um had one specially bound in pigskin and given to the Fuhrer himself it's oh, weird but okay yeah pigskin is that what they make footballs out of probably not anymore yeah probably not anymore but at one time <laughs> Footballs is an American footballs, not UK and everywhere else in the world footballs. But I don't I don't know what those were made of. (laughs) Moving right along. So yep, second Bush book published, check. As more and more time goes on, he's I think he's having a harder and harder time dealing with uh, you know, the people that he's having to work for and just what effect I mean, things are starting to kind of go full steam ahead as far as the whole, you know, Nazis being Nazis thing. And yeah, and yes, he was a homosexual and had a couple of trysts that Himmler found out about. So like the first one, he was kind of like, look the other way. The second one, I believe, was with a, a Lutwaf. Is that how you say it? 
Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe. It was with a Luftwaffe pilot or officer. <laughs> so that one was one that he really couldn't just uh, turn a blind eye to. So he was like, okay, I'm going to have to s- slap you on the wrist a little bit because, you know, we don't do that sort of thing. And he was sent uh, to do some guard duty at a concentration camp at, at Dachau. Oh, so it was just like, we're going to do guard duty here, and you're going to see what's going to happen if you do this again. Exactly, because it was full of people of Jewish descent. It was full of dissenters, people who had denounced the Nazis, and also homosexuals. So basically people like him, people of Jewish descent, homosexuals, people who denounced the Nazis. He was... A bit of a drinker, and I think probably as his outlook on what was going on grew more and more bleak, he tended to drink more. And when you drink more, you talk more. So not only was he in trouble because of the the whole uh, deal with the with the officer, but also it was rumored that he had said some not nice things about the Nazis, and and that in itself was, yeah. you know, you just didn't do that at that point in time anymore. But there was no more saying anything like if you weren't 100 percent on board you were pretty fucked at that point yep exactly so after four months of having to uh be a guard at Dachau and seeing like the full like awfulness of what was going on he couldn't take it anymore he wrote a letter of resignation and handed it to Gruppenfuhrer Karl Wolf, or, yeah, Wolf. <laughs> I don't know how you say Wolf in German. <laughs> Something. <laughs> he was the chief of, Hermital, of Himmler's personal staff, and he said that uh, he had grave reasons for his resignation, but he would have to tell that to the Reichsfuhrer in person on his next visit to Berlin. It was just too, like, he couldn't put it down on paper. That was February 28th, 1939. Now, it's kind of vague what happens between this and the point that he disappears, which is March 13th, 1939. But apparently there was some kind of conversation with Himmler or... Yeah, I don't know. Words were exchanged where he was like, maybe could I do this? And Himmler was like, okay, you quit. This has happened. This has happened. This is not with the Nazi code. Here are your choices. You can be executed or you can choose to kill yourself. Mm. Right. (laughs) So on March 13th, 1939, he is seen going up a trail up to the Alps and disappears. Now, a few days later, his body is found frozen in the snow. But there's a lot of rumors as to how that happened. Um, Some say that he just went out and accidentally died of exposure he fell asleep in the snow and died of hypothermia (laughs) right or he just walked until he couldn't walk anymore because dying of exposure is better than dying by the hands of the nazis yes and it was 
not like he left Himmler's office saying like, oh, we're going to execute you. I mean, like he he was a marked man. He was being watched. There was like yeah. no escape. Yeah. Like if it didn't happen on his own account, on his own account, it was going to happen at the hands of the Nazis. Eventually he can just be like, oh, OK, well, I'll kill myself and then just run and escape somewhere like. No. By the time it's 1939, yeah, he's suicide whether he liked it yeah, or not. Yeah, by the time it's 1939, there basically like is no escape. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, not not easily anyway. No, definitely not. And so that was it. That was it. Now, other uh, sources have said, you know, cyanide tablets. Although, I mean, that's kind of a Nazi thing. But you know, yeah. he went out in the snow. He took some cyanide. Uh, he drank some rum. Fell asleep. There's another theory that it was suicide, but it was called the Endura, which was actually a Cathar form of ritual suicide by cold and starvation. Mm. I kind of like that one the best because I think he dug the Cathars and he's like, you know what? I'm going to go commit Endura. Yeah, like I mean, at least that's it, the it way I'm going like to go. He was doing something. That's yeah. the way I'm going to go. Some people say that he never even died; that he actually faked his suicide somehow, and he, you know, changed his identity and you know went on to do whatever. But I don't know. I'm I'm pretty sure he just froze to death in the Alps because if he didn't when he came back from the mountains like he was gonna get shot or sent to a concentration camp or whatever by the nazis because they're yeah. fucking assholes like that i tend to believe that as well yeah that is that is what that's what i believe in that and that is all i have on on auto ran and it's it's unfortunate that I mean, for many reasons, obviously, it's unfortunate that the Nazis were such intolerant shitbags, but. Yeah, I'd I say mean, so. <laughs> it's just, I mean, this guy was awesome. So. Yeah, he's a great author, a great historian, uh, an archaeologist. And it's just like, oh, well, sorry, your lifestyle doesn't like conform to our, you know, fucked up ass beliefs. So you need to just die now rather than to you know keep on contributing to the world and i'm that happened you know millions probably like about millions yeah, yeah. six million times over to yeah you know lots of people that could have contributed a lot of things to the world and they just weren't for their and their fucked up virulent horrible ways yeah well, I agree, and I think that's about all we have for this episode. Yeah. So thank you all very much for listening. And as usual, you know where to find us on the social medias. We're, if we're there, we're, on, we're at Stranger Than or Stranger Than Podcast. Our Patreon is at patreon.com slash Stranger Than Podcast. $2 a month gets you ad-free episodes, and $5 gets you those. And then in addition to that, a bonus episode, a true crime bonus episode. You can also give us a. You can also take a look at the podcast syndicate we're a part of, ageofradio.org. There's lots of stuff you can listen to there. It's a lovely page. And with that, I we will talk to you next time. And stay strange.